Welcome back, everybody, to My Old Hands. Today, I'm joined by a gentleman that I've really wanted to speak to for a couple of years, and as the conversation rolls out, it'll become more obvious because I'm about to tell you about his background really, really quickly. It might be, you you might be thinking it's because he does one thing, but it's actually because he did something else. So today, I'm joined by husband, father, on-air actor, and one of my favorite voice actors, Chris Argos. Welcome to My Old Hands, Chris. Oh, well, what an intro. Thank you so much for the uh, for the invitation to be here. I'm honored. I'm so excited to have you because I did mention in there that you're an on-screen actor and you have a history in that field and we'll get into a little bit of how you've helped people, maybe also get into that field. But the real reason I wanted to speak to Chris was that I stumbled across voice acting a few years ago and I wanted really just to improve my own voice, not so much to make it a career. And everyone kept talking about the performance of this particular book. For a nonfiction book, quite often they're, well, they're pretty banal. And everyone (laughs) kept saying how great the performance was in acting in Chicago. Like, oh, I don't really really want to be an actor, but I really need to go (laughs) hear this guy. And as soon as I heard it, it instantly, and I've listened to, I think, 800 audiobooks, most of them nonfiction, and I would have yours in the top 10 of performance. Oh, my gosh. Acting in Chicago, I listened to it purely just because of the performance. So, hmm. thanks. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, <laughs> that's I just the shock <laughs> to hear. Uh, yeah, I, it's just amazing. So, well, thank well, you. Well, people are hearing that. you now, so they can hear the quality of your voice. But it's more so just the way you delivered it and the passion that you had through your own work. I'm not sure that someone oh. can connect quite as much as the author can with their own work. So, yeah, I mean, so much easier when it's your words, you know. So, yeah, um, but that's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> Well, you're welcome. So, acting in Chicago, I was hoping we could start with the audiobooks. As you became interested in acting, Chris, was audio narration or just the concept of being a voice actor even in your universe, was that something you knew about? And were people ever telling you, you have a voice for something? I guess the typical thing would be a voice for radio, but was that in your (laughs) world? Yeah, you know, when I was in Chicago, when I was in high school, I, in the suburbs of Chicago, I had a teacher who was like, Agos, you got to be an FM DJ. And um, (laughs) I mean, I knew I didn't want to do that. I was like on a different path, right? But I also knew that there were people who made their living speaking and then using their voice. And so I was like kind of curious about it from a a pretty early age. And then, you know, I, I got into college and I actually just kind of got overloaded with my classes and I was on my way to medical school. And honestly, I I needed a bit of a distraction. I needed a break. And so I decided I'm going to try out this voiceover thing. And I found a guy who teaches people how to do it. Back then, he was like the only person in Chicago who taught people how to, you know, to be a voice talent. And so I just kind of rolled with it. And that's how it started. Wow. And it's one of the main parts of your story that I'm fascinated about. And I've had a few people that touch on the voiceover world on here in the past. And it's because mostly I'm just into their work more so than specifically they're in voiceover. But I'm assuming when you told your family and friends that acting and voice acting was becoming a fascination and an interest, you probably benefited from having the medical degree because I'm assuming they almost died when you told them that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be clear, I didn't go to medical school. I didn't have a degree. So no, that didn't help. But um, I mean, you know, I was pretty lucky. I had a very supportive family and they were not 
as shocked, I think, as maybe you would expect. I, I was a bit of a performer in high school. I did a little bit of acting, you know, and it was not like completely out of the realm of possibility for me to, you know, explore it a little bit. I think it was a, it was a surprise to them when I wanted to do it for a living. I think, you know, back in those days, that didn't seem like something that was a reasonable ask, you know, certainly not for somebody growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. So it was definitely a shock for them, but <laughs> they were pretty cool about it, I have to say. Okay, so with the growing up in the suburbs of Chicago comment, just for context for you, Chris, we only have two cities that where the metropolitan area is even in the same ballpark of Chicago, with uh -huh. Sydney and Melbourne, which I guess just as far as just what's considered Sydney or Melbourne is actually bigger than Chicago, but as an entire metropolitan area, they're probably still smaller. So for us down here in Australia to hear that it's not a dream or it's not maybe possible for someone from those locations, Chicago's <laughs> got a rich history in theatre and improv and all those things. Why did you feel like maybe it was something that was out of reach for you at the time? You know, that's a great question. I just, I just grew up not thinking that that was really a thing that you could do for a living. I think because of the era in which I grew up, and I think you and I are similar ages, you know, back when we were kids, TV actors and movie actors, they weren't accessible. Like, it just didn't seem like something that you could viably do unless you were like born in Los Angeles or New York. Yep. So I just never really thought about it as something that could possibly be a career path. And you're right, Chicago has a really rich history in theater and improv, which was, you know, the improv scene was developing as I was a kid. So it made sense that, you know, I was able to find at least one person to kind of show me the ropes. But today, you know, there's really a gigantic industry in Chicago for educating actors and voice talent. And, you know, back then it just wasn't really that big. So growing up in suburbia, you know, you you went to medical school or you opened a business or you, you know, went and worked with your parents, whatever they did. So it just didn't seem really all that attractive so when i when i said hey i think i'm gonna go do this my parents were like where like how are you gonna do it yeah and i was like i don't know I, but i think i can and yeah. you know i don't have any financial obligations so if i fail who cares you know and they were like okay well you know we'll help you if you need <laughs> so so we might get back to just talking about chicago more when we talk a little bit more about acting in chicago the book and your work around the book hmm. but i'm just wondering when you first set out to start getting acting jobs, obviously you're talking about an error, and I'm not going to out either of us for our exact ages here, but there may <laughs> have been more of a disconnection between the movie world and the TV world as to people being able to move between them seamlessly and maintain whether it's credibility or constant work, because they seem to, at least from my memory, have been two separate groups of actors almost between the two genres, I guess, of on-screen acting. Yeah, you're right about that for sure. Where were you getting maybe those early jobs? Was it from voice or were you on screen? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to be a voiceover guy. So I was not at all interested in, you know, what today we would call on-camera acting. And I only got into it because somebody asked me, they were like, do you do on-camera? And I was like, I don't know what that is. What is that? <laughs> And, you know, literally, I and they kind of looked at me funny and they said, here, go take this class. They handed me a brochure, one of those old school trifold brochures. 
And it was a, a brochure for an acting school that was offering like commercials classes or something. And they were like, just go take it and come back if you like it. It was, it was my first agent who did this. And she, she and I were working together with um, just on voiceover. And so I went and I took it and it kind of turned out that, you know, it wasn't, I was, I, I wasn't fantastic at it, but I liked it too. I liked it as much as I liked voiceover work. So it occurred to me, I was like, oh, well, if I, if I do voiceover work and if I do a little bit of on-camera work, then I could make a little bit more money. I could maybe stay in this business a little bit longer. So it just seemed like a logical step. It was like, okay, I'll go learn that now. Yep. And Chicago back then certainly was not a hub of TV or film production. There just really wasn't much being done there. Hmm. So the opportunities in TV and film really didn't exist. You had to kind of find other avenues to be able to work on camera. And that's still true to a certain extent today. Although obviously today, you know, so many shows get shot there. It's so much bigger than it was when I was coming up. Right. And you've kind of touched on one thing that comes up in your work and it does come up in acting in Chicago specifically. And that's to build an acting career, particularly when you're starting out, you may need to try your hand and commit to myriad different forms of the art. If you're sticking yourself just in a little box, that may not be a career building choice these days and or in the past. So one other thing you touch on in the book is also the importance of having a lot of interests outside of acting. So one thing that's always fascinated me is is acting kind of, well, I've started doing stand-up comedy a few years ago and I'm only really just a beginner still, but it's all encompassing. It's all I think about. Every thought I have when I'm at my day job or when I'm meant to be hanging out with my mates, you know, doing whatever, watching a movie, there's this, this thing ticking away in my head, comedy, comedy, comedy. <laughs> is You're acting like that and, and can it be like that? I think it can be like that. It's a great question. It really can because part of acting is being able to understand a little bit about human psychology, right? Mm -hmm. And figuring out how people behave in certain situations. So you can really go pretty far with that. You can always be paying attention when you're grocery shopping, when you're on a train or on a bus. You can always be observing people and how they react to certain stimulus or, you know, certain conflict or whatever. You can be collecting a lot of information and kind of putting them in your actor tool belt as you live your life. And so I think that's really common when you're new to something, when you're, you know, you're, you're brand new and you're very enthusiastic about it and you're still learning the skills and you're trying to cobble together, you know, what's going to work for me? What is that thing that's going to flip a switch and turn me into somebody who could actually do this thing that I want to do and do it at a high level, right? Mm. So. I think it's very much uh, anything creative is very much like acting or stand up comedy or writing a novel or whatever. You know, if you have the drive to do something, I think you're constantly collecting the resources and the ammunition to be able to do it. That's that's awesome. And I'm just wondering, is there a point where and it sometimes happens to me that you can make the mistake of forgetting that you're actually living real life though, not just collecting <laughs> information because I quite often am cataloging ideas for bits when I'm meant to be involved in a conversation or something yeah. that's happening in the moment. Is that the same for someone with an actor's background? I don't know. I think the danger with actors tends to be that I'm done learning, 
right? Like I've accomplished a certain amount, a certain amount, like a certain goal, or I've done a certain amount of studying, or I've studied with a certain person and I've kind of reached where I want to be and I feel confident. And that means I'm done learning. And I'm just here to tell you, and I think you know this as well, that you, we're never done learning. Like we can always continue to add tools that we didn't know we needed. Yeah. So Yes. I mean, obviously, you know, part of the job of living our lives is to be involved in the moments that we're living. Right. Yeah. But I also think that the greater danger is probably to just have this attitude like, okay, I can rest now or I can I, I don't have to pay attention to whatever it is that's going on around me because I don't have to collect those skills anymore. I already have them. I think that's that's probably not not a good place to be. <laughs> And it's funny that we've even touched on that because I kind of feel like that's the story of the audiobook for acting in Chicago writ large for me. Mm. I went in just really just wanting to hear what does this guy's performance sound like. And it's one of the few audiobooks, nonfiction, that I've listened to more than once. And it became, I was being less analytical about the performance and listening to how great that part of it was and actually started absorbing certain bits of information from the actual material hmm. and I truly value the book for that reason because a lot of books I go in and I think my interest maybe wanes over time as I'm like, oh, well, I know where this is going or I've heard this before. It was kind of mm. all brand new information I didn't even realize I'd have an interest in. Well, I mean, I, I sort of can't believe that you're from where you're from. You're in Australia and you picked up a book about, of all things, acting in the Midwest of the United States in Chicago. It's like... Hmm. I mean, that's kind of uh, amazing just in and of itself, but it's it's really nice to hear that it had an impact and not just the performance because the performance is what it is, right? But the the content of it yeah. made a difference for you. Thank you for sharing that. I don't know. I just, I, I you know, I wrote the book because I, I was sick of answering the same questions from all the students I had. Yeah, <laughs> they were yeah. all asking the same ones. And I was like, look, if I just put this on paper, will you just go, you know, read it and then you don't have to ask me the same things over and over again. So that's why the book really exists in the first place. I think, although obviously Chicago is a massive place compared to where I live, I think another thing that hit home about the book was that it emphasized to me that even if you're not in the absolute biggest market for a creative endeavor in the world, and the majority of us aren't, there's more people not in those markets than there ever will be in them. True. That it doesn't mean that the quality of output or the talent or the passion for the actual creative form, whatever it is, is any less. And right. it just made me feel good because I made the decision I'm going to stay in this particular place until I'm this amount better at comedy. And I was starting to question if that was a good decision because mm -hmm. honestly, if you're in comedy in Australia, you probably need to go to Melbourne. It's our big comedy center and there's a month long festival there. That's one of the biggest in the world. But hearing your book and it's talking about, I hate to use the term, a secondary market, which I, that every time I hear that term about places like Chicago, I'm like, that's bigger than all our cities. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it just made me feel good to know that just because you're from a smaller place, quote unquote, that the art can be just as good. So that was a through line in the book. Yeah. Well, I, I think not only the art, you know, the art, we want our, our, whatever we bring to our careers, we want to be as good as we can at it, right? But I think the other side of that is when you kind of declare to the world that you deserve to be paid for something, for something that you're doing, like the people who are writing the checks, you know, 
they absolutely want somebody who is uh, the best actor or voice talent or comedian, whoever, for that job, for their job. So we have to we have to bring our best all the time. It doesn't matter if we're working in a smaller market or a medium sized market or where we're doing something that's going to be seen globally. It, it, it shouldn't matter. It should be we want to do the best we can all the time because that's the responsibility. That's the job we've accepted. Yeah. I kind of look at my podcasting the same way, and it's maybe not the people who are signing the checks. It's the people that are giving up a chunk of their life to listen to it. Absolutely. I mean, and those people are more important maybe because they're giving you something for, for the, and they could be doing anything else, right? Mm-hmm. They could do anything else with their time and yet they're choosing to spend it with you. And that's such an honor, you know? My goal really, Chris, not to make this about me, but it's where we've gone there, is for people never to say that podcast is good for dot, 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 a guy from Australia or mm-hmm. a little town in a rural, I mean, it's not a tiny town. There's 130,000 people here, but that's basically the size of one suburb of a major city. Mm-hmm. I never want to have people be able to say dot, dot, dot. I just want, oh, that's a pretty good show. Yeah. So that's what I'm going for. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. an excellent goal. <laughs> I think you're so, in the right mindset. So you mentioned coaching in there, and this is another point of fascination, particularly because in the comedy world, even the idea of having anyone teach you anything is anathema to comedians. Right. Particularly the bigger the comedian, the less they would ever admit to having any help. Although <laughs> a lot of them have writers. So I guess it's a you know, it swings and roundabouts whether <laughs> how they're viewing that, I guess. But mm-hmm. with acting, to me it's kind of analogous to my favorite sport. I'm a massive tennis nut. Novak Djokovic has got a massive team. Rafa Nadal has a massive team. Yeah. Alcaraz now, who's the up-and-coming great player, has a massive team. There's super elite people, the best of all time, that they wouldn't even function without a coach in certain elements of their daily practice. Mm-hmm. So, And acting seems to be the same, that it's actually encouraged, continue to have classes, get coaching, embrace getting better and better and better, whereas in other artistic forms, it's almost seen as a no-go, don't even talk about it. Why is acting different in that way? Yeah, you know what? Nobody gets anywhere in this business without somebody else. Like, y- you might see an amazing performance, that, but that performance didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, that was, there was a lot of work that not only got the actor to the point where they could pull off that performance, but also to just give them the opportunity to do it in the mm-hmm. first place. I guarantee you, anybody you're seeing on screen right now has not landed there because they were brilliant just on their own. They needed somebody to step up and say, I believe in you, or I think we can work together, or, hey, think about this instead. Maybe try that and see if it works. Acting is a very collaborative process. You know, it, when the ancient Greeks started it, they, it wasn't one guy getting up on the stage and doing it. It was a team effort, and it's been that way ever since because it's better that way. I'm, I don't pursue comedy. I don't know how stand-up works, but I can understand why when it's a solitary single individual standing on that stage with a, a mic and a light on you, that is the impression that the audience gets, that it's all that person, right? But it can't be because the business is too big. And to get to pretty much any level within it, you need help. So 
the other thing and I, I, when it comes to acting is you're constantly wanting to improve. It's a muscle that will get weak if you don't use it, mm. right? So these movie stars, and they go, you know, years between films, they kind of have to ramp up and maybe not relearn everything. But as they go into their next big project, they, they coach with people, they, they work with consultants and professionals in the field that, you know, if they're shooting a movie about, I don't know, that, that takes place in a boat, they're going to talk to, you know, boating experts. I don't know. But there's a whole process that people go through in order to get ready for certain projects. And it's just so weird to me that people, audience members who really are disconnected from the business, that they don't kind of understand that, yeah, there's a whole group of people that are behind whatever it is that you're watching. It's not just what you see on yeah. screen. And I remember Edward James Olmos saying somewhere, well, someone maybe said this about him during Battlestar Galactica, that mm. simply having someone at his level on the set made everyone better. And he probably didn't say that about himself. Oh, absolutely. But one of the great actors of his generation, fully invested in that character at such an intense level, made the entire collective group better than they may have been. And that that's something that I is analogous. I can't agree to with that more. I want to be the worst person on every yeah. lineup. And if it's a really good lineup, currently I probably am the least funny because I'm the because I'm the newest. <laughs> but nothing's made me funnier faster than throwing myself in that deep end and being around all those other people. Because if I was doing it all alone and was really resistant to how good they actually are and not taking that in, I wouldn't be any better, I don't think. You know, it's the same in voiceover and acting or, or whatever. Uh, I made the most progress as a voice actor when I got into a class that was specifically for working professionals. There were like 10 or 12 of us and everyone had more experience than me. Everyone did more than me, had been in the business longer than me. And it was like the best thing ever because that's where I learned how to work the craft. That's where I learned the most. And even on, you know, some of the jobs that I've done, I've had the good fortune to be able to work with some really amazing people. And some of them, I spend a day with them and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I pick this tip up from that person or these two or three things and I'm going to apply them going forward. It automatically changes, you know, what you bring to the table. So absolutely surround yourself with people who know more than you, who have been doing it longer than you, you know, because that's, I think, the best way to learn for sure. One of my favorite Australian comedians is a guy named Jacques Barrett. And on a global level, like I've seen lots of comedians, he has just as high a laughs per minute as anyone I've ever seen. It is just a battering ram of jokes. And I was talking to him after a gig and I had maybe 30 seconds that were as good as his entire hour. And he's got multiple hours. He actually said, and it was really the only conversation we had about it because you can tell he's worn out after 20 years talking about comedy a little bit. But he just said, you've just got to build more of those 30 second or 20 second chunks. Like that's all it is. It's not, you're suddenly going to be miraculously better and everything's going to be gold. It's just building tiny little chunks of stuff that's better. And I was yeah. just wondering with acting, do you remember a specific moment or a period of time where you felt like that snowball had started to move for you? and you were getting some momentum and it was starting to come together? I don't know that I can come up with like a single moment in time, but outside of the one that I mentioned, which was that, that class that was like an eight-week class that I took, 
I can tell definitely that there was a black and white difference between what I was doing before and what I was doing after. And that was really, uh, that was really amazing. But I agree that sometimes progress is not fast. (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe, maybe when we, when we worry about the speed of our progress, you know, we're kind of taking our eye off the ball a little bit. Like we should be worrying about doing the things that help us progress further in whatever we're looking to do. And so for me, it's always felt like a work in progress. Like, I I don't know that I can point to a certain project or a a certain moment where I'm like, oh yeah, there I was really good. And here's why, (laughs) you know, I think, I think that's the other thing. I'm always like, when you walk off the stage, aren't you like, okay, I'm going to reflect on the show and, and I'm going to, you know, maybe I'm happy with a couple of things, but there's also like so many moments that you want back, right? Want a chance to do it over again. I don't know about you, but that's, that's how I am every time. I'm like, all right, I'm happy with like 10% of what I did, but I think the other 90%, I don't want to say it stunk, but you know, it was definitely room for improvement, you know? And I'm trying to get my head around this at the moment that what could be seen, I guess, or misconstrued even as negativity. I've found a way and I never could do this through music. I was so self-critical that I never actually really got maybe to the level I should have. In terms of even my own confidence Mm. as a guitar player, I was reasonably good at guitar, but I never Mm. let myself even have an inch. I just concentrated on those moments of failure to the point where it took out all the joy of everything else. But as I've gotten older, and I wish I had have known this when I was younger, you can enjoy the joyous moments and also improve on the negatives or things that you're not as happy with, and those two things can run together. Yeah, it, yeah. I'm not sure if you've had that experience, but I just think it's a lesson I learned about 15 years later than I would have liked to have. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah, you know, I think it's really easy to focus on the negative side of things, for sure. And it's also, it's also really easy to turn that off, at least I, for me, because I, re- I kind of reach a point where I don't want to feel like that anymore. <laughs> you know, it's just, I just don't want to be a downer. And so that's when I kind of, I try to switch it off and I try to go back to, yeah, but I got to do that thing. I got to be there. Or, you know, a couple of friends of mine, actor friends of mine and I, you know, we look at pretty much everything as a win. It's like, oh yeah, I got an audition. That's a win. I got a callback. That's a a humongous win. Oh, I was put on a veil. Oh, that's like, I might as well, you know, I could take that to the bank. I mean, you can't really, but getting the job is like, you know, obviously you're going to order a cake and throw a party, you know, but you do have to take time to celebrate the little wins along the way because otherwise, like, what are you doing it for? I guess that's my question. Like, if you don't, if you, if you focus on the negative too much, what are you doing it for? Correct. There's probably many other art forms and even creative endeavors where there are multiple steps to even getting to do the thing. But in acting, it seems that there's a formal process. And was there a time where you weren't celebrating getting the first audition, maybe getting the, the callback and then oh, maybe yeah. get putting on a veil, as you called it, which I think is basically we want you or we might want You're you. You're shortlisted. Don't book anything else. Yeah, You're shortlisted right. and then getting the gig. So- was there a time or do you even find yourself now maybe not being as excited as you could or should be about getting past step one or past step two? 
You know, it it really does depend. I'll, I'll be completely honest. It depends on what's going on at the time, right? Yeah. Everybody has goals. Everybody has ups and downs. Was there a time when it was really hard to look at an audition as a win? Yeah, uh, of course, because there was a time when I expected that I would get endless numbers of auditions, right? It's just like when I didn't know any better, when I got into the business and I thought, well, it's just like, it's easy, right? I didn't realize how challenging it would be. (laughs) Had I known that, I probably would have like maybe not bothered because it really did take quite a bit of commitment and and Mm -hmm. time to have a career develop. So, yeah, I remember those those days when I was like, well, of course I'm going to audition and of course I'm going to get it. I think that was very early on. I had this attitude where every job was mine to lose. I was always super confident that I was the right person for the job. And I think that really worked for me in, in under certain circumstances. It didn't always work, but what it did was it took away any kind of, you know, self-doubt. But, you know, eventually you hit a streak where like, that's not working for you anymore. And you're like, well, I guess this isn't my job to lose. I, you know, you, especially when you're, when you see the, the final product and you're like, oh, I totally understand why they went with that guy, because what he brought to the party was absolutely not what I did. And his, yeah. you know, his was so much more right for the, for the role. It doesn't mean it was better. It was just for what they were putting together. He, his was the peg that fit. Right. Yeah. Better aligned. Exactly. So yeah. it's funny because as I'm talking about this, the mental game of doing anything creative, I think is just like as important as your ability to do it. You know, your the way you go about building a career or pursuing something in your, your attitude about yourself and your place in the world, I think has much to do with how it goes for you. It makes me think we're fortunate enough in where I live, that about an hour and a half away, there's a very successful professional comedian that's really on a rocket ship at the moment, but he has created over the last five or six years one of, if not the best, I guess, rural comedy rooms, I guess, for the lack of a better term, probably in the whole country. Cool. Every gig you do there is absolutely on fire. You could walk on stage and not say anything Mm. and get a laugh. And the first time (laughs) I had the chance to do it, I feel like I really earned my way onto that bill because he's booking the best of the best in our country and our comedians are very strong. But the few gigs I did after that, they were still good, but I hadn't yet learned how to regulate. Oh, that's a peak experience. Not everything is going to be that mm-hmm. because that's one of the great rooms full stop. Most other gigs or most all <laughs> are not going to be quite what that gig is. So I just had to change my mindset a little bit going into the last time I did it that oh, this may hopefully be another peak experience, but just don't get too bummed out when the gig tomorrow night with the same lineup in a slightly different town isn't quite as magical. And yeah. I feel like that's a big bit of, like that's one of the main things I think I've improved at, being able to feel more level through the good and bad. And I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not a professional by any means. I don't want to misconstrue my position in the industry, but- I feel like that that's a slightly more professional mindset, not letting the roller coaster take control of my mindset quite so much. (laughs) 
Well, you know, as an actor, if you do a lot of theater, theater actors will tell you that you can put up the same show night after night, but the audience makes all the difference, right? Sometimes you're going to have an audience that's really, really engaged, and other times you're going to wonder if they're all asleep. And it has sometimes nothing to do with what you're doing because, you know, you're trained and you're, you're doing, you're pouring everything out yep. uh, and your castmates are doing the same thing. But every once in a while, you get in front of a, a group of people that just are not buying it or they're not buying it as much as maybe the, the previous one did. Yep. And it's just all part of the deal. You know, it kind of comes with it. So, yeah, you got to get good at putting the blinders on and just doing the work. Right. And it's like, what are you doing it for? Are you doing the work because you enjoy doing the work? Or are you doing it because you're hoping for that standing ovation at the end of the, <laughs> at the, end of the play? You know, like standing O's are great. But, yeah. you know, if you're doing it for that, maybe, maybe you should, I don't know, reevaluate. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to question anybody's motivation. But I just feel like if you're, if you're doing something because you really enjoy it and you just really can't imagine not doing it, I think then you're on the right path for sure. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel with comedy. It's yeah. the only time I've ever let myself actually have what I would say is a hobby where I don't care what the end goal is. Yeah. I just want to get, I just want to be better at it. And that allows you to be fearless. You know, it's like if there is yeah. no end goal, then you cannot fail, right? Because yeah. you're just doing it because you like to do it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I look at it as I can have micro failures in the moment. A joke might completely bomb that I thought was great, but in the macro, it's all about just enjoying it and what comes just comes, the good and the bad. But overall, yeah. it's just positive because I'm, well, I'm sticking in there and I'm doing the work. So, right. I wanted to speak about something quickly that I found really fascinating. And I know that I'm banging on about acting in Chicago, but it's the work that I've absorbed the most of yours. And I feel pretty familiar with it. You had a really technical chapter in the book about using something called the ear. And I don't, oh, want to, yeah. I don't want to relitigate what the ear is, but <laughs> did you get any pushback from your editors or even your internal monologue having such a technical chapter in that book that really, I'm no dummy, it took me a couple of listens to fully grasp what exactly is he doing? Like I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't picture the whole process. It took me three or four listens. Oh, that's what he's doing. It's, it's this. This is where you would do it in this situation. Did you get any pushback from anyone having overall the book is just say like a five difficulty wise you, th you threw a random 10 in there <laughs> for the lack of a better analogy. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I get the most feedback from people asking about the ear prompter, uh, the ear. Yeah. And I think because it's such um, like, okay, the book is very niche, right? It's, it's an acting book and it's for ostensibly people looking to act in Chicago. It says they're right in the title, acting in Chicago, right? So this is even a smaller, tinier niche inside of a career of an actor in Chicago. And it's this tool that we sometimes use called the ear prompter. And basically what it is, just so everybody is sort of understanding on the same page, is it's kind of like a teleprompter. But instead of looking at the words and reading them from a screen in front of you, you are listening to the words which you record in your own voice in an earpiece that you wear in your ear. And the whole thing is only working correctly if it's not being seen by anybody. So the idea is that you're you know, delivering a script and you don't have it memorized, but you're doing it word for word because you've pre-recorded it. 
and it's playing in your ear. And, you know, the skill is being able to get it out of your mouth and, and still act at the same time. Right. That's the tricky part. Yeah. So did I get pushback? No, but people are fascinated by it. It's funny. It's the thing that when I first read the book just seemed the most alien to me. And now it's the one thing that when I do listen to the book, it just stands out so much of, <laughs> wow, that's incredibly detailed and super fascinating. I'm so yeah. happy that's in, I'm so happy that's in the book, even though it's probably well, it's something I will probably never, ever do. Right, right. It maybe didn't even know I needed to know. You know what? It's, it's And it's so funny because it's only used under certain circumstances, right? Like there mm -hmm. aren't a lot of people that use it. We use it when we have a lot of copy that we need to get through. So in corporate stuff or in presentational things, actors get hired for all kinds of things, not just TV and film. Mm -hmm. And often, you know, we'll use it in stuff that is just not sexy, right? And there's not a giant audience for it. So it's this tool that nobody really knows about. But every once in a while, you do hear about someone famous who will use an earpiece in a play. And it'll, you know, word will get out and there's all this, you know, the controversy about it sort of re-erupts and, and there's accusations that fly like, well, is this, is this person incapable of memorizing or is this person cheating in some way or, you know, whatever the, the question is. And, you know, so it kind of resurfaces from time to time. And I'll tell you that they, they're used still. You just maybe aren't, aren't noticing that they're being used. Yeah. So I do have one last bigger question, Chris, before we, we go today. But if people wanted to get a feel for what the ear is, is there a way that they could fake it at home? Oh, Because totally. I've tried. I just talked into my phone and then yeah. I pressed play on there and then tried to talk a few seconds after I was hearing that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that's even in the ballpark of how it really feels, but I found it incredibly challenging. And I talk yeah. into microphones a lot. <laughs> what you described is exactly what I tell people yeah. to do. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. So you can, you can start with your own voice, right? You can take a paragraph out of a book or you can take a, a post online or whatever, and you can record maybe 60 seconds worth of audio into, um, into your phone. And you can pop in an earbud and press play at the beginning and let a second or two go by and then begin to recite what you're hearing. And the skill is being able to hear it and listen to it and spit it out at the same time. But remembering that you have to let it get a little bit ahead of you because you need to anticipate what's being said next, you have to hear it before you can say it. So it is tricky. And when it gets harder is when you dial up your favorite podcast and you try to follow along with words you've never seen before and a voice that isn't yours. Like if you can do that, now you're really cooking with gas. Okay. Because that's the most difficult uh, circumstance to work under. But yeah, it's a crazy, it's a crazy little tool. And I'm, I'll tell you what, it's been instrumental in, in certain parts of my career. And uh, I still get people <laughs> asking me about it from all walks of life. You'd be surprised. <laughs> That's awesome. So I just wanted to finish up. What is next for chrisargos.com or for yourself? Do you have anything happening that you're particularly excited about that people can find out about? I do have a new book coming out. Picture acting in Chicago, but not with the Chicago emphasis. Okay. So working on that, and hopefully that's going to be out in the next uh, relatively short amount of time, next few months. 
So you're not going to do the lame thing that business authors do and then just cross out part of the cover of your old book and then put not in <laughs> Chicago, are you? I could do that. That's a good idea. It's a yeah, terrible yeah. idea, but I it's I a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I have to. I, I have to. Um, I, I have always wanted to. So the acting in Chicago book I wrote back in 2010, the first edition, and we're in the fourth edition now. So I have always wanted to do a book similar to that, but for a, a national audience or potentially even an international audience. So I've been working on that for quite some time. And given the fact that uh, I have some extra time on my hands right now, given the circumstances here in the U.S., things are moving quickly in that direction. So that's pretty much what's next for me. Excellent. So one really quick question. When you're voicing your own book, how do you know you're doing the very best performance you can do? Who do you look to? <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that question. I mean, <laughs> pretty okay. much. You don't uh, need to have one. I was just wondering. <laughs> no, uh, you know, what I do is when I, re I, only, I only narrate audiobooks that I've written. I, I don't pursue yeah. audiobook narration. So mm. if it sounds like something I would say, I'm happy with it. Uh, yeah. that's, that's a pretty low bar, but that's my bar. <laughs> that's a great bar to have. And I grew out of that as a comedian, just trying to say funny things and just saying things that are truthful to me. And literally, it's taken four years and I've probably only done that in the last three months. So hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a journey for all of us to find the real version of ourselves. I think. I think it's a tall order to be authentic. I think that's what we're all really striving for. And it's, it's not easy all the time. It takes work. No. <laughs> Correct. So at Chris Argos, that's Chris, obviously, A-G-O-S on Instagram. Amazing Instagram, by the way. It's got probably the least amount of ego <laughs> of and self-referential photography of anyone I've ever come across, acting or otherwise. Like, it's just really a warm, friendly account. Oh, so that's that, so nice. I really, I, I was scrolling through there earlier thinking, <laughs> did I miss anything? Is there any questions I can ask? And I'm like, well, this is just a really personable human Instagram account. I think I you're being really kind. I think the way my Instagram profile looks the way it does is because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just, there's all this yeah. stuff that like I should be doing and I'm not doing any of it, which is probably why it seems like it's just a guy because it is. <laughs> so thank you for that. That's all right. There's lots of stuff. I'm not doing any of it. It's pretty much the human experience a lot of the time for creative people. So <laughs> <laughs> once again, chrisargos.com. Thank you, Chris, so much. Thank you for bringing your wonderful brain and wonderful voice to my old hands. And I've had a few people ask me, and I've got you here and I've got about 30 seconds to tell everyone. The reason I started this show was because I just clicked over, I think, 12 years of making podcasts. And wow. I found an old photo of myself sitting in front of a keyboard and doing a really rudimentary edit. And I noticed how much younger my hands looked in that photo, but how much more rudimentary and basic my skills were. And I looked down, I'm like, my hands look old, <laughs> I'm aging but I feel like I've got so much more expertise. So that's how that name came to be. So I, I've had a few people ask me that, why is it called that? It's because I looked down one day and thought, oh, my hand's looking old, but they're a lot more skilled. So sorry you had to be the person that listened to that, but I just thought I'd better share that. <laughs> that's, so. No, that's fascinating. And it's a great personal touch. Uh, and uh, I'm glad you shared that with me. So thank you. And thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. As I said, truthfully, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time because- when someone creates something that's not in your wheelhouse, but you get fascinated with the, the thing, that to me is what real art is. It's like, hey, 
this is a thing I made, I really care about it, you might like it. And I didn't listen to it because it was cool or even my friends were suggesting it, I just stumbled on it and now it's an important thing. So thank wow, you. Wow, that is really, really kind of you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Thanks.